And the Oscar goes to Helen Mirren in the Queen. Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Carl. And I'm Chris. And our guest this week is Sam Meltzer, the host of the Excellent Awards podcast and the Oscar Doesn't Go To, which focuses on Best Picture nominees that failed to win any Oscars. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to chat with you guys today. I'm really thrilled to be here. I can't wait. Yeah, we're going to be talking actresses today, um, specifically the 2006 nominees for Best Actress in a Leading Role. As we ask all of our guests, why did you choose this particular category and when did your love affair with the Oscars begin? So I chose this particular category because this is my favourite lineup in the history of the Oscars. From what I know, it's, it's the only time that my five match up perfectly with the five. I mean, there are a lot of years that are older that I haven't seen enough movies, but from what I know when making personal lineups, this is the pretty much the only one that aligns perfectly. I just think it's such an extraordinary group. I think all five of these women are some of the best actresses ever. And I think that these are like either their first or second best performance. If you're just looking at it in the context of careers, I mean, all of them are Oscar winners, All of them are so iconic. And I think that these performances are just so representative of how talented they are. Um, So I really like that the Oscars just went with this five and and the same five were nominated at every major precursor just goes to tell you that like this was a unanimous decision. They're all so spectacular. And as for my love of the Academy Awards, I started watching the Oscars during the Moonlight La La Land year, like that whole situation, that was my first year. And I had seen, you know, a good number of the Best Picture nominees. And I sort of did the same thing where I watched some of the movies and I'd watch the ceremony and predict things. But my real love of the Oscars, when I really started to get into it, was the 2019, 2020, the Parasite year, because that was like, maybe like the first year that I thought of movies in a much grander scheme of things. And ever since then, I mean, since quarantine started, I've just been on this long Oscar journey and it's been very interesting. Um, So that's really when it sparked. But I guess it started in 2016. The 79th Academy Awards took place on the 25th of February 2007. And the Best Actress in a Leading Role Oscar was presented by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the nominees were Penelope Cruz in Volver, Judy Dench in Notes on a Scandal, Helen Mirren in The Queen, Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, and Kate Winslet in Little Children. So let's kick off with Volver. How did everyone feel watching this? Well, like um, like most films by Almodovar, I think there's um, aspects of it that I just kind of um, have to accept as him. Uh, I'm not, I have to say off the top, I'm not a, the greatest acolyte of Almodovar. I recognize his uh, talent and his incredible eye. There are all, there are usually um, aspects of his scripts that make me cringe a little bit. 
this wasn't a case where that happened, and I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Probably one of my favorites of his uh, that I've seen. It actually kind of made me sit back and think, okay, I should I should do a deep dive into him and, and see what else he's got. So Pedro Almodovar, contrary to what you're saying, is my favorite director-writer. Um, just in the last year, I, I mean, I've watched so many of his movies. When Penelope Cruz got nominated this year, I almost started to cry because it was like such a surprise. And like, it made me so emotional that this performance that I'd been championing for like months actually got recognized. And like, whenever she works with Pedro, it's just a dynamic duo. I think he's so creative and she just represents everything that he wants to achieve, whether it's the soapy melodrama or the intense realism or the Spanish mannerisms. It's just so perfect to me. And Volver is like one of the best examples of that. It's definitely a top three or five movie of his. Um, yeah, it's it's a very passionate and entertaining, twisty movie, just like all of his movies. Um, and I never get tired of watching it. Third watch, it still holds up and I still discover new new twists and new subtle plot lines that are hin- hidden underneath all the passion and chaos. I, I mean, I really am just such a fan of both of these people. And whenever they collaborate, I'm always in for it. Yeah, I think, like, especially the look of the movie. Um, and Chris, you said Almodovar has got such a keen eye. Um and I love the amount of thought that's gone into the look of the film, the costumes, the production design, and how attuned the mise-en-scene is throughout. It's so bold and vibrant and full of personality. Uh, and he does tend to make an effort with that on most of his films, but this one probably does that the best. Like you can even pick out the, the red car, the tablecloth outfit that Cruz wears, the sort of ostentatious patterns of some of the other costumes. Um, so I, th- I really liked that about it. Um, and I like that it's an issue-driven movie, but it's never not fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 pretty light, but it's very well done. Yeah, I think Almodovar is one of the few filmmakers who can open the film with a daughter murdering her father as he tries to sexually assault her and still keep it light. <laughs> and... Um, the the whole plot line, which is almost like a B story, which I really appreciate the kind of cheekiness of her disposing of the body, is not even the main plot, uh, which I really <laughs> I really liked that he just kind of made that almost a comedic subplot throughout. And yeah, the, the whole mise-en-scene, the use of red and blue uh, throughout the film, kind of it kind of started giving me like Tati vibes, because in playtime, he always had something red in the shot. And I don't think there's a single shot in this film that doesn't feature something red. And if if there's not red, it's blue. So he really loves those colors. So yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful looking film, you know, to say the least. I really like, I mean, I like the Jacques Tati reference a lot because of the style. And then if you think about story and kind of style, he takes a lot of influence from Douglas Sirk. Um, like, just imagine how much... Douglas Sirk would have loved Penelope Cruz or Carmen Moore. Like that would have been a match made in heaven. It's clear that he has a lot of influence. He also likes to do this thing where it's sort of one trick or one joke that kind of repeats itself through one scene. And it's, I don't really know how to explain it. It's just characters kind of translate things over to each other. And there's a lot of repetition within one scene. And it's this very sort of Spanish mannerism that's, he likes to, uh, make present in all of his films or a lot of his films and it 
I think like if I were if I were someone who lived in Spain, like I would like it even more. But I always appreciate his little touches that sort of show his love and admiration and respect for his country. Because if you if you see a lot of his movies, especially in Parallel Mothers, like the whole there's a whole subplot in that movie that that sort of only makes sense if you live in Spain or know a lot about Spanish history. And even though in Volver it's not as present, there is just such a Spanish feel to it. And I think that's where all the explosive, colorful energy comes from, especially in his directorial directorial choices and the, the way he composes every shot. It's very detailed and passionate and fiery. Yeah, you can also see the the admiration he has for the women in his past as well. Um, and I think like, because at the Cannes Film Festival, this Best Actress Award was shared between the six main actresses involved there, which kind of feels like a fitting statement to its, you know, girl power energy. Uh, and this, you know, being a story about three generations of women in one family trying to do the best for each other. Um really feels like a, a pie into to Spanish matriarchs and in some ways kind of like a precursor to the Me Too movement. Um, but, you know, Al- Almodovar's films thrive on an emotional mess and occasionally can get too heavy. Um, but I think this gets it just right. Um, but I love that it's a story about women taking care of each other. I also love that the most prominent man in the movie dies within the first 20 minutes. And then for the rest of the movie, no man has a single line of dialogue. Yeah. Well, I mean, except for, except for the guy who comes for the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not even like a character, really. He doesn't become like a romantic interest or anything. He's just a client who then disappears. Uh, And yeah, I really liked that as well. And if you look at all the top reviews on Letterboxd for this movie, they're all just like, why do we need to make movies about men anymore? Pedro Almodovar understands that women should be the full sole focus of every movie. And it's really funny. It's just like tens and tens of reviews saying the exact same thing. What did you guys think about the plot? Because um, I was kind of happy that they ditched the supernatural element of it. Um, that, that feels like that's what's going on at the, at the beginning. Um, I think it kind of cheats as a mystery by having Agostina casually mention near the end that her mother disappeared on the same day of the fire, which then kind of clicks everything into place and you you understand what's happening. Well, I mean, I I thought that that came at the right point um, because it had just been, yeah, ditched the supernatural element. And I, at first I thought, oh, is this going to be a ghost thing? You know, until then she, you know, ghosts don't tend to travel in the trunks of cars. So that was a, <laughs> an early clue, shall we say. Um, but now then I, I, th- I thought Augustina's uh, reveal of that was well-timed and it just kind of clicked for me there. And I was like, ah, okay, I guess uh, the piece has fallen to place. Um, but I think, yeah, kind of going back to what Sam was saying about the Spanishness of Almodovar's films, um, this kind of commentary on the superstitious elements of um, kind of the smaller towns in Spain. And, you know, it's not unique to Spain, of course. Um, but I did like um, I did like her mom's line about uh, how useful it was that the village was so superstitious that she was able to kind of just be a ghost and live under their noses for so long and nobody batted an eye, really. I think that the another part of the plot that I really like 
is the um like it's you're kind of unsure of whether it's a ghost story or not for a lot of it because she's sort of interacts with them and it's not like you know i'm trying to thinking of another 2006 movie that i rewatched recently it's that's also in spanish it's not like pan's labyrinth where like the whole fantastical elements are sort of just in her mind and then you have that scene at the end where like the fun sort of disappears for a second because it's like not her reality um but this it's like Almodovar doesn't ever directly tell you um, for a long time whether or not this is a fantasy movie or not. And it's really interesting. And then you also have that Chinatown moment at the end um, that I won't spoil too much, but it's kind of the same thing. (laughs) If uh, you were going to nominate one of these other women as Best Supporting Actress, which would you guys choose? I think it's just very difficult for... Um, well, it, it's difficult for non-English performances to get recognized at the Oscars, but really difficult for supporting roles. Because um, it, it's like kind of weird for a studio from another country to try and campaign a supporting character. I mean, having the lead actress or the lead actor gets you much further. Um, but if I were choosing, Carmen Moira would have gotten a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Yeah, she would have been great. I probably would have gone with Lola Duenas. Um, I I really liked her and her frazzled attempt to cover up her mother's reappearance was, was always delightful. And uh, her her interaction, the, the chemistry between her and Penelope Cruz as sisters was, was a real highlight of the film for me. So what about Cruz herself? Flawless. This is just a total blast of a performance. Heartbreaking, intense, exciting, melodramatic in a perfect way. It includes even like humorous moments, very Spanish oriented humor. And it's just sort of her movie star persona exemplified in a Spanish language performance. And it's really captivating and just absolutely thrilling and exciting to watch from beginning to end. You cannot take her eyes off her. Yeah, agreed. I mean, she just she's such an amazingly talented actress and she's so good in Almodovar's films. And this one is the highlight for me, I mean, I I have to. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen Parallel Mothers yet, um, and I absolutely have to. I know, um, but her in this was just yeah, so captivating, and her character's so strong, and she's uh, yeah, uh, holding everyone together in this very strong way is a joy to watch. Yeah, she really excels in this sort of darkly comedic tone the film's going for. Because even in tense scenes, she brings, you know, real charisma and sly comedy. And I kind of loved the way she just brushes off the, the blood stains on her neck when uh, Emilio comes to the door and he, she just says, oh, woman troubles. <laughs> like another actress could easily have played that for more drama. But she gets she gets that what the scene needs is sort of an absence of peril, you know. Um, and the same when she's on the phone to him confessing over taking over the restaurant and she's just lying through her teeth, you know, saying she's hysterical, Paco's left her. She's just so funny in the film, you know, and more impressively, she makes the comedy look easy and natural and that's actually quite difficult to do. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I think, all of Penelope's movies with Almodovar and even though that you can make an argument that her style of performance and obviously the style of the films doesn't vary too much, it's it, it's sort of like the analogy of 
sure she's not doing something so wildly different every time but it's like going to your favorite restaurant and ordering your favorite food and it tastes amazing every time and there's a reason why you keep going back to it um and that's how I feel about how most of our films in general it's just kind of like going to my favorite restaurant ordering the best meal and just I never fail to enjoy it and the song as well her performance of the song um is so passionate it's outstanding like I don't know how she manages to sing with such passion I don't think that was her singing <laughs> I just not her singing no oh yeah. what so she's just lip syncing but still. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, a Spanish singer named Estrella Morente. It was lovely anyway. I think it, it's funny, though, because, like, so that year at the Oscar ceremony, you'll notice that if you watch the clips, they're all, like, three seconds long. And hers is just three seconds of her singing that song. And the reason why that is, is because Mark Wahlberg was nominated for The Departed. And because he literally curses at like pretty much every sentence of that movie. They couldn't include a long enough clip of him. And because his clip had to be three seconds, everyone's clip had to be three seconds, which I think is really funny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So next um, we've got Judy Dench in notes on a scandal. Um, One thing about notes on a scandal I noticed particularly (laughs) Like, I do like Philip Glass in general, and I even like the score for this movie, but maybe in shorter bursts, like, the score just does not stop in this film. And coupled with the voiceover, um, which is actually really funny, um, a little distracting, but there's some amusing lines, like when um, Dench is referring to Joanna Scanlon as a pig in knickers and... Then when she tells Sheba to break it off with the boy, she says, um, bon voyage to your little leprechaun or something like that. (laughs) Um, Like the lines themselves were funny, but I think that, you know, the non-diegetic input was quite heavy handed. I think it needed less, less of the music. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Um, It, and I mean, it's not as distracting as a film we'll get to in a minute or several minutes, I guess, but um, yeah, the the overuse of the score and the narration uh, definitely bothered me in a lot of places, especially in places where it wasn't required. Um, and her just regular dialogue and a few, you know, punchy lines like the ones you were just mentioning would have been fine. I don't think we needed so much of it. Well, I love the score. I get where you're coming from because like that theme is used a lot, but I love it so much. And I listen to it. I think it's called invitation. Um, I think it's just like kind of fluttery and like propelling and very interesting. And Judy Dench's narration is really like, this is very campy. This is, this is like, I think this is a pretty campy movie. And I think like her narration really adds to that. Like she has such a, such a specific sense of vocabulary that it, if 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 she wasn't like a teacher, it wouldn't really make sense. But just all of that building up to it, I think one of them is like, no one can violate our magnificent complicity. And just the way she emphasizes each of the syllables makes me die. It's so like well-timed and hilarious. She's like, she's such a powerhouse here. And the narration just like really allows you to get into her head and really portrays the character so passionately and in such an interesting 
headspace. I don't know. I'm I'm I get it, but I'm in disagreement that the score and the narration were overbearing. I like them a lot. Uh, the script, I think, is a little sensationalist. Um, I get where you're coming from, Sam, with the campy. It's very campy um, and fun. But I think maybe too trashy for the kind of story it's telling. And I don't feel like it properly fleshes out Sheba enough to suggest why she started sleeping with a 15-year-old. Like, I found it borderline offensive that the film implies that it might be because... She's got an older husband and a special needs child. Like, as if they aren't perfectly lovely anyway, as a family, you know? So it kind of made me think, do you guys think this would be made the same way if it had been a male teacher and a female student? No. no. And, I mean, I, I think that this is a problem in general with the way society tends to view this type of let's not beat around the bush here uh child abuse um and with and i'm not saying that you know flipping the genders would change that fact but we do for some reason people the general public seem more forgiving of a female teacher and a male student than they do with a male teacher and a female student and both are abuse but this, it's almost like, you know, just the guy's like one of the lads and he's just bagged a hot older teacher and that's fine. I'm not saying it's fine, but that tends to be kind of the approach. And the movie uh, obviously portrays it as, you know, people get upset, but the movie doesn't really bother with actually, I don't know. It, I, I, it's hard to articulate, but it doesn't seem to condemn it very much. It shows the public outcry, but it doesn't actually seem to condemn it. It seems to always frame it as an affair when it's, you know, sexual abuse of a 15-year-old who cannot consent. And that bothered me. There's a difference, I think, between trash and kind of perpetuating harmful stereotypes. I think what it is, is that the character that Kate Blanchett plays isn't supposed to be sympathetic, but it can be difficult to watch Kate Blanchett in a movie and not find her sympathetic because she's just such a you know, star and she's so talented that I think naturally a lot of people gravitate towards her. And I didn't view this character. I, I mean, I think both of these characters are so intensely flawed. And I think that like one of the points I made when I first saw it, I was writing about it was that they're that you you can't decide whether they're like there's a sense of they're both protagonists and antagonists at the same time, because in in reality, I mean the only reason you you do see a public outcry towards the end, but and had Judy Dench not been a lesbian woman who was attracted to Kate Blanchett, I I think she would have immediately told the school about it and it would have been over. But I think the reason why this movie works for me is because of that tension and because of that sort of inability to go forth with how you actually feel in, in such a distinct situation. Um, but I can understand how it can be viewed in that way. I just, I guess I have too much of a blast with it and I think I'm able to understand the writing of the characters because I think that Kate Blanchett, again, like, she, I think Judy Dench is a lot better than her in the movie. I think I think Kate Blanchett's actually 
kind of weaker. And I think she, she goes a little too overboard in the end of the movie. Um, but a lot of the reason why I think you're talking about these harmful stereotypes that you might feel are being perpetuated is because of the way that the character is presented rather than the way that she's actually written, um, which can be difficult to distinguish. I, I always appreciated it, but I, I see where you're coming from. It's, it's difficult to pinpoint it. Yeah, I mean, we do get the public outcry near the end, but I kind of wondered, like, would it be that much of a scandal? Because these things do happen more often than they should. And there's usually a paragraph about it in the newspaper, like maybe on page 12. So I don't see this being front page news that warrants a barrage of reporters camping outside her house. I didn't understand if there was her dad was supposed to be well known because it's mentioned that she's inherited the house from her dad so i was wondering whether she was supposed to be like a a public figure of some kind but i don't think a regular teacher student um liaison would be on front page uh, newspapers in the uk i think that's what could have been flushed out flushed out better is what's what's her backstory we don't know too, too much about what that is aside from her family and yes it is a little bit offensive to sort of frame it as she's having this affair with the student because of the fact that she has a special needs child and has a husband who she doesn't really like and sort of married to be in the wealthy situation um, but again I think I think a point of the character is that she's not meant to be likable um, or at least most of the time, not meant to be likable. It's, it, it, there are a lot of in, in unsympathetic uh, aspects to this character. Yeah, Barbara's definitely a stronger character than, than Sheba. And at the end of the movie, you know, I, I really liked the end uh, scene. It kind of reminded me of The Collector a bit, where, mm. you know, this complete sociopath and fantasist uh, has invented a relationship inside the head and is eventually moving on to the next person once they've created all of this damage. There's the scene on the bench between Dench and Anne-Marie Duff is like the perfect way to underline Barbara's mentality with this poor, unsuspecting, lonely woman being reeled into a role as her next victim. So I I loved the end. Yeah, I. it's a yeah. cycle. The only thing missing, um, well, we still, we also get that little bit of um, the same thing we get in The Collector where she kind of brushes off the previous relationship as a mistake or just nothing, you know, as she moves on to the next one, you know, and fine tuning it. Although, of course, now she's kind of reduced to picking up women at park benches. I'm not sure I fancy her chances of getting in as deep. Um but I I did still like the end. I, I liked, and I, I also thought of The Collector uh, when watching it. It had a very creepy edge to it. And that's kind of what I liked about the whole movie of Judy Dench's um, performance was that, uh, that intensely and campily creepy vibe she gives off throughout as she, you know, kind of stalks through her life and invents, yeah, invents this relationship that ultimately ex- implodes. The character is an interesting comparison. I, 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 that movie was very challenging for me to watch 
because I kept waiting for a catharsis to happen and it didn't. I think the difference is that Judy Dench's character in this movie is much more compelling than Taron Stamps in that movie because I remember the I I haven't seen this movie in a while, but I remember you had a scene where he sort of there was a flashback to his childhood or him in his past work life and how he was bullied and that sort of perpetuated him into going into the state that he is now but to me that was really not enough of a reason to do what he was doing and maybe the point of the film is that you're supposed to be left uncomfortable and and hate that character but that made me challenged um i wanted the samantha eager character to succeed whereas in this i'm happier with judy dench succeeding than kate blanchett if you want to think about it in that way yeah dench is so terrific in this movie um the scene where Phil Davis comes to see her, um, which is a little bit too scripted, to be honest, but there's a silent rejoice where she kind of finds that she's got the, the, the moment to stick the knife into Sheba, finally. And it's fabulous. We're going to talk about an entertaining villain next with Meryl Streep, but Dench just revels in Barbara's monstrous two-faced nature. Um, and it's compelling. And it's unlike any other performance she's given, which I think makes it even more special. Um, mm. Again, the scene where she's the cat's on the way out and she's trying to get Sheba to come with her to the vets. Oh my God. She's genuinely devastated and then completely turns on Sheba uh, so cruelly and it's scary to watch. I think in that scene too, it's such a difficult decision because if I were Sheba, I would still go with my family. I mean, I think I think most people would agree with that. Um, but at the same time, it's like Judy Dench can unleash everything. She has all the power by doing literally nothing. Um, and it's so like it makes it so intense. It's just such an initial and complete obsession. But she like really can control everything about the relationship to the point where it's kind of haunting. Um, but she's still like such a joy to watch at the same time. I mean, there's, I think there's one point in the movie towards the beginning and you, and they got Judy Dench to say like, I adore lasagna. And I think it's, that's fucking <laughs> hilarious. Like what, like they, they got Judy Dench to say things like that. You never expect her to do. And then you have this whole other side of the character that's like menacing and layered and villainous and, and creepy, but just thoroughly interesting and gravitating to watch she is like this character is so like delicious like everything about it i just like eat up on screen um it's it's really unlike anything she's ever done and i and she recently talked about the fact that this was the best role she's ever played and i'm glad she understands that because this like she needs to do something like this again this is so extraordinary and such a powerhouse that i i feel kind of bad that they're giving her these tiny old lady roles in, in, in all these movies when she should be getting something like this. You're not young. <laughs> Best line. I say this to help you. <laughs> uh, next, we've got Meryl Streep and The Devil Wears Prada. Um, the author of the novel that The Devil Wears Prada is based on, um, Lauren Weisberger, hasn't exactly stated that the character of Miranda Priestley is based on Anna Winter, but she did work for Vogue in the late 90s as her assistant. So I think we could put two and two together there. Um, but I love that Anna Winter's quote when asked about this was, I cannot remember who that girl is. <laughs> I just thought that was so perfect. Like um, 
it's completely beneath her, uh, like uh, Miranda Priestley behaves in this movie. But what did everyone think of The Devil Wears Prada? For a film that opens with Suddenly I See, uh, (laughs) I was expecting a much more progressive film and a bit more feminist film. Um, And I expected the stakes to be a bit higher than, but what if this career spoils her relationship with her boyfriend? And (laughs) that, that really dragged it down for me. I mean, I know it's a product of the time, but still it it just had some very, very kind of patriarchal elements that are briefly addressed in the film, but then brushed aside very quickly. Uh, And I think it misses a, it misses a lot of opportunities, let's say, to to be a bit more uh, progressive and feminist in its approach to women trying to make it in a man's world. Yeah, how much of a loser is Nate? My God. <laughs> Do you know who's more of a loser? Her friends. Her friends suck. What is wrong with them? They're actually such assholes. Like, they were literally, she, they're so ungrateful. She literally got them all of these really expensive and nice products. And then what do they do? They toss around her phone with her boss calling who she takes very seriously. Like what are like she doesn't deserve them. She does so much better than that. I was kind of like that scene kind of pissed me off. Like every time I watch that scene, like the movie, like that scene gets me like it, it ticks me off a little bit more. Um she doesn't deserve those people. She deserves better friends and a better boyfriend. And a better father. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that the film goes to great lengths to try to establish them as right. Like, you know, oh, you're selling your soul, you're doing this, you're doing that. And I think we're meant to agree with them. But maybe it's just because now we're looking at it 16 years later. I didn't see it at the time. And maybe it would have gone over my head. But I never did. And yeah, the, her her friends are just such... Yeah, what is with them? I agree. Uh, if she just stuck it out, she could have gotten... She and Emily Blunt could have been, should have been, amazing friends in this film. They should have been allies, and they should have worked together instead of the classic, you know, catfighting, the stereotypical catfighting that we get instead. And, oh, imagine them as a power duo, you know, helping Miranda rise to new heights, overcome the takeover bid and stay in control. I mean, she stays in control, but in a kind of underhanded way. Uh, So yeah, I I wish that those two characters had, had clicked better. I I think the movie works because Andy is actually a much more compelling character than you'd expect. Um, And Anne Hathaway doesn't get enough credit for this performance. I actually think she's fantastic in the movie. Um, I do think that the other three of the main cast definitely steal the show, but she's really good in the film. And I think a lot of what we're saying attributes to that, because the fact that we're saying she deserves better people in her life means that we sympathize with her character so much. Um, But yeah, I mean, the Emily Blunt character, I wouldn't take that aspect away from it because her performance is just so specific and she's just so ridiculously in character the whole time that I don't want to enter any of those lines, especially like when she's like, yeah, whoopee. Like there's something about the way she's sort of trying to dismiss it is really funny. Um, And then there's like the 
when she, she, Andy is having that crazy day where she needs to get the Harry Potter novels and she has to get Miranda a steak in like 20 minutes. She's like, I'll be back in 20 minutes. Wish me luck. And Emily Bunch is sitting there on her computer. No, shan't. And it's like really <laughs> sharp and just so in character. And I don't know. I wouldn't take away the sort of cat fight aspect between them, even if it is a little more stereotypical. Sure. Not denying it's hilarious. That Harry Potter plot point is ridiculous, isn't it? Like, I, <laughs> I don't so think funny. The, the person doing the cover art, I don't know if they'd even have the manuscript, but even if they did, there's no way the person would hand it over and risk the book being leaked to um, the whole world. But um, th- this was a big moment for Emily Blunt. She won a Golden Globe in this year for a TV performance. Um, I agree with the Oscar nominations that the film got, but I think it should have got another one for Emily Blunt in supporting i would give it adapted screenplay as well the comic delivery is just perfect on her part and i like the movie i think the movie is ultimately saying that fashion is important you know andy eventually moves on to quote-unquote serious journalism and sees past the fashion world but it feels like the experience has been important to her Mm. um her and Nate appear to go in separate directions because, you know, they've got jobs. One's got a job in Boston, one's got a job in New York. So it does feel like Weisberger recognises that the time in her life shaped her in a positive way too. And I like that the film has this underlying message that just because an industry isn't for you doesn't make it unimportant. Mm. And the same goes for Miranda because for all of Miranda's faults, uh, and that she makes everyone around her miserable, she still seems to be pushing runway forward and keeping it fresh and relevant. So I kind of like that message. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of that message is to do with Meryl Streep and less to do with uh, the screenplay because she's the one who kind of pushed that. Like, she's the one who drew attention to that speech about Cerulean and kept pushing the director and the writer to make that more of a pivotal moment, like an insight into how Miranda approaches fashion and its importance. And then later, you know, it's her idea to be kind of open up to Andy in the hotel room after she gets the news of the divorce. And it's, it's all kind of Meryl Streep bringing that humanizing and that, and that character development to Miranda, which apparently wasn't really there uh, to begin with. And I think that's a huge credit to her because it, the character could have been so one note. Definitely. I didn't know that actually. Mm. Um, especially the scene where she's talking about the divorce. She's wonderful in that scene when she says another divorce an- another disappointment. It's kind of the one time where she lets her guard down in the movie Miranda and you see the person behind the workaholic. She's just wonderful, streeping that scene. Yeah, that's when the emotional, that's when an emotional layer is really added and it makes it so much more compelling because she has such a hilariously scary screen presence throughout and then that scene happens and you realize, you know, she has all her flaws, we just haven't seen them. We've really just seen so many of Andy's um, and we haven't gotten to see a lot of Miranda's and it's just really kind of a beautiful scene because you see all that happen and then at the end she's like now go work and it's like she's always going to still come back to the same Miranda despite um the whole aspect of her character that's so 
and like fierce and commanding. And I think that's sort of represented in, in an industry that's that's more run by men than it should that she has to really fight her way through because she talked to Meryl Streep talked about it. She's like, if that character was a man, would it have been viewed the same way? Would people have, you know, seen seen Miranda in a, as as much of a commanding and haunting and mean way almost? And she said, I don't think so. And then she's talked about the fact that this was the first time that she had a role that both men and women thanked her for and said that they really resonated with her with. And I, and I, and I really appreciate that because I think it just goes more beyond how iconic Miranda Priestly is and how much she's, she's been, you know, influence on internet culture over the past 15 years. Um, But I think, I think it's just such a star turn and it's such a layered character and it's above all, so much fun to watch just every time she speaks it is like everything else drops she is she is the only thing you can focus on it's it's really amazing she's iconic i think it's going to be the the role she's going to be remembered for certainly by a younger generation um it's just some of the withering looks uh is just perfect and um the diva grandstanding so I, I mean, it's a, on the page. It is an interesting role for any actress. It is a scenery chewing role in every scene, but she kills it. She really does. And I loved, um, particularly her speech when she won the Golden Globe for this. It's probably one of my favourite speeches ever, because not only does she crack jokes and be charming, but she manages to throw the limelight on lesser-known films nominated among the Best Actress nominees. Because I think when you're making an Oscar speech, the bare minimum is to pay tribute to the losing nominees. But she goes a step further than that, and it's really classy, which Streep always is classy. So, And it's funny because when she was listing all the movies, the way she says Volver sounds like Volva. <laughs> she says it kind of quickly and like it, like with her American accent, and it sounds like Volva. <laughs> Dreadful Stanley Tucci. That's what she says. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Stanley Tucci, I actually think, should have been nominated for this movie. He's, he's definitely an MVP of the film. He's really funny. And he, you, he's given that whole scene where he explains to Andy his backstory and why she shouldn't really give up and how to really work in this industry. And it's a really compelling character moment. So I think he's really phenomenal. And I also think he should have been nominated for Julie and Julia. Stanley Tucci deserves more recognition in general. Any more on Devil West Prada or Streep? Well, the iconic quotes, we haven't listed a lot of them. <laughs> uh, well, there's the, there's the scene where Andy is trying to get her a flight out of Miami, but there's a hurricane. And she's like, what, the weather? It's just, oh, I don't know, drizzling. And then it, there's a huge like crack of thunder. <laughs> There's also the scene where she's telling Andy, like the first time she tells Andy what to do for her errands and she just gives her a thousand things. And she's like, oh yeah, just get 20 skirts from Calvin Klein. And then Andy goes, what what kind of skirts? And, and, and Miranda goes, please bore someone else with your questions. And then of course, the why is no one ready? And then the florals for spring, groundbreaking. And all of the that's alls. It's like every, I, I could go through every single line of dialogue she has and every movement and every walk. It's so iconic and well done. There's a reason 
boy, this is when Meryl really became Meryl Streep. Like this is when people gained a different level of respect for her and realized this while she had done comedy in the past, this was the first time that audiences were like, she can play any character in the world, including iconic comedy villainous. Like she really can do it all. And this is one of the things that solidified her as Meryl Streep. And it's such an amazing talent. I think she's perfect in the film. Yeah. And this kind of turned her into a box office drawer as well. She started getting roles in more commercial movies. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to mention very quickly and kind of echoing Bolbert's complete lack of uh, male characters who you don't want to punch in the face. Um, this we've mentioned, I mean, aside from Nigel, of course, but aside from Nate, she doesn't have anything better in that Christian creep. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, He's not from, even hot. Like, Neither of her boyfriends were no, hot. Right. Like right from the get go though. And this, this is an annoying, the only part, well, uh, several parts, but this part really pissed me off about Andy because I know I get that she's supposed to be naive, but who could be that naive? Because this guy is hitting on her very openly from the first second he lays his lecherous eyes on her. And she's just like, oh, he's such a nice guy. He's in publishing. And <laughs> then like after all of that, he meant, I think it's not even, it's like just before they go to Paris even and he comments on her clothing and how it makes her look sexy and she like gets this look on her face like what you think i'm sexy oh have you been flirting with me this whole time you've been hiding it so well i oh what a creep what an absolute jackass so yeah um she has no romantic options in this film so i guess falling back on nate if you're gonna I guess is a better of the two, uh, but it's really the really a lesser of two evils situation she's got there. She'd be better just jettisoning them both. But what if during the scene where Streep opens up about her divorce, she admits that she's a lesbian, and then they, they become a couple? <laughs> <laughs> plot twist. <laughs> plot twist. <laughs> Major plot twist. I like it. <laughs> it'd be it's it'd be better for both of them, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, next, we've got Kate Winslet in uh, Little Children. And this is adapted from the 2004 novel by Tom Perotta, which uh, is the same year that the TV show Desperate Housewives began. So I think suburban satire was um, all the rage at this time. But I can't help thinking that the wrong Todd made this. Because this is so in Todd Salonza's wheelhouse. And this movie, to me, just feels like a pale imitation uh, of his insights into the, the dark side of suburbia. Because if they did have to adapt this book, I think it would probably be better suited to television, where the characters could be expanded upon a bit more and where there might be time to thread all of these story strands together properly. Um, the, the movie didn't work for me. Yeah, and it... It didn't work for me either. Um, the The strands of the film, I think, were very clumsily tied together in the end. Um, and the main 
focus of it was the least compelling for me. Like watching Sarah and Brad, I didn't, I, I kept wanting to get back to the other characters whose stories were much more compelling than are these two bored suburbanites going to have an affair, which the obvious answer was yes. So not, and also, I okay, this is a personal thing maybe, but I don't like Patrick Wilson. I think he's a bad actor. So when you're, when I'm not invested in the lead, uh, uh, coupling, I suppose it it really made this film kind of a bit of a slog for me. He's got some great buttocks. I'll say I that. Was, I was about to say. <laughs> well, I think he was cast for that. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's not a great actor, but he's certainly attractive, and that drew me to the screen. So, are you telling me there's no men with hot asses in Hollywood in 2006 who could act? I doubt that. <laughs> he's all right in this. He's. I didn't think he was bad. He's just Patrick Wilson. I guess I'm going to be the only one defending the movie here because I love this movie. I love suburbia hidden movies. There's something about it that's so compelling to me. Um, And yes, it sort of has that trope that it's like, look underneath, look beyond. There might be something more. Uh, And this film often gets compared to American Beauty, which I get. And if you look at the performance of the lead actress, though, I think it's very different because in, in American Beauty, Annette Benning is given a lot of eccentricities and she's wild and flashier. And I think it's a much more comedic performance. Whereas here, I think it's really difficult to kind of just play an everyday suburban woman. She isn't given a showy role. She doesn't have a defining eccentricities like Annette Benning does. So I understand not really liking the movie. It's definitely the least liked of this group. But there's something about it to me that feels very compelling and how fiercely sensitive it is. And I think that maybe a miniseries would have been better. I think Kate Winslet is great in a lot of miniseries too. So that would make sense. But I don't know. There's there, there, uh, there's a scene I really like at the beginning where she's you know it's it's sort of her way of fighting back at suburbia because it's clear that there's something about it that rubs her the wrong way i think there's a lot of people who feel trapped and and there's the scene at the beginning where they're, they're at this park that they go to every day and the three women that are that are there usually with her are obsessed with patrick wilson and they think he's just so hot and they talk about him in their fantasies all the time and they tell her oh you can't get her you can't get his number i bet you won't so what she does is she goes over to him and, and says those annoying women over there, blah, blah, blah. And then like, they literally start making out. And it's just a really like her expressions in that scene. She She's very like, not nervous. There is something holding her back. She definitely has more confidence than those other women would because she doesn't actually care. But then it's sort of like the realization that she has while she's kissing him, that she actually likes him. And then there's also her way of fighting back at the suburbia and saying, fuck this world, I want to be in my own, and I want to sort of diverge from that. So there are these multiple interesting qualities that sort of combine together, and I think that she has a lot of moments...
I going to have to disagree about the narration. Um, that was my least <laughs> favorite part of the movie. Just because I don't know what Todd Field was thinking with this, but just because the information being read out is the kind of paragraph that I would skip over in novels because it's clear that the writer is fleshing out something that isn't really that important. Because there's an entire section where we learn about Sarah's husband's obsession with slutty care. And (laughs) I'm thinking, (laughs) why do we need to know all of this? Just have the scene with her walking uh, walking in on him, jerking off and be done with it. So I, I didn't really think that those parts... Um, added anything? I agree, and yeah, there there were too many of those moments, like shifting the focus away and kind of grinding the film to a halt. Um, and just yeah, overall, the narrator just kind of explaining the character's motivation when we have, for the most part, actors talented enough to get that across. Like, I didn't need him telling me what Sarah was thinking. I could see it. You know, I could maybe I couldn't get the exact thoughts, but I could see what was troubling her. I could see it because Kate Winslet is an actress who doesn't need a narrator to tell you what her character is on about. Um, So I, I really just wanted him to shut up. Like, Judy Dench, at least, was Judy Dench, and you never tell her to shut up. But this guy, he, he's not even a character in the story. He's just this disembodied voice explaining things to us. And I really didn't think it needed that. I want to say that because there isn't enough humor in the film, but the, the thing that made me laugh most about it was um, the performance of the daughter. Uh, when she won't sit in the car seat. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> she said, I will not sit in the car seat. Um but what did you guys think of the attempt to introduce Madame Bovary into the film? Because it seems to, the fact that the book club's reading Madame Bovary seems to draw a parallel between Sarah and Madame Bovary. Um, but that was a book written 1856. So I think like in 2006, is there any reason why Sarah can't just leave Richard? I know it takes guts to end a marriage, but if you're that miserable, just go. Like, I didn't feel much empathy with her situation because she had a pretty cosy life. She could easily leave that marriage, get half the money, get custody of the kid, and live the life the way she wants to, you know? So I kind of felt like, why is she not doing anything about that? I agree. Um, I think, I mean, I think they were trying to draw parallels. It was a little clumsy for me, a little on the nose. Um, And also to have her friend being, you know, so conservative with it and just be like, well, this woman's just a tramp, you know, it just seemed really, really, yeah, on the nose and unnecessary. But yeah, the parallels don't really work because of the things you were just mentioning. Uh, If she wanted out of the marriage and it's clear that her husband is almost completely absent you know, with, you know, up locked in his office, you know, smelling underwear. So I, I don't think her daughter would have been particularly traumatized to get out of that house. So, yeah, it seems like she's uh, she's not being proactive enough there. I kind of like the um, 
on the nose in your face aspect of it, which I know is weird. That probably sounds pretentious, but I don't know why I'm drawn to it. I guess I'm just, I just fall for that kind of thing. But like I, I, before I watched this movie, like what was it two years ago? I think I watched it for the first time. I, I thought I was going to hate it. Like I went into it really negatively and maybe the fact that I liked it makes me like praise it more than maybe I should, but I don't know. I've always sort of been the defender of this movie. It's not like it has terrible reviews or anything. I just feel like when this lineup is discussed and when this year is discussed in the Oscar race, this is always sort of looked down upon and, and viewed as like the weak link. Um, but I don't know. I guess I'll be I'll be the the one enjoyer of it. I do think at least the supporting performances are strong. Um, Jackie Earl Haley in particular, I think, really gets across the the tortured nature of the character in a way that's pretty devastating. That scene on the swing at the end, my heart just breaks for him, to be honest. Um, and Phillips, uh, Phyllis Somerville as well, as lovely as his mother. And I think Jennifer Connelly's pretty, pretty good, actually. Because that character could easily come off as two-dimensional, but she plays it quite intelligently um, as this controlling wife that is unable to switch off. But I appreciated the, the supporting performances a lot. I think Jackie Earl Haley is the best performance in the film. I'm going to agree on that note. I think it's a very three-dimensional, intense, and very captivating and heartbreaking performance. Um, I do, I, yeah, I agree that he's has, like his storyline is the most interesting, but I, for whatever reason, fall for the other aspects more than most. What did you guys think about the ending? Because it was strangely open-ended. Like, I felt like the film was crying out for closure and then they just sort of leave that side of it and it's unclear why they both didn't meet each other. Are they going to continue the relationship or not? If not, why not? I just found that very confusing. Maybe Brad, you know, when he ate shit with the skateboarders, he just has amnesia. Like he gave himself a concussion, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I agree. They just kind of on it, just really abruptly kind of ended. Like she has that moment where she thinks her kid has wandered off, and that lasts for about thirty seconds, and she finds her, and then she's like, "Well, why don't we just go home?" Okay, yeah, it it seemed like a, a needlessly open ended way to leave it, and I agree that some closure there would have been nice. To bring it onto Winslet, I think, I think she's fine. Um, it's not one of her more impressive performances for me. Um, I think she would be better in Revolutionary Road a couple of years after this. Um, and Labor Day is another suburban one, but that the less said about that, the better. But um, I think she's I think she's perfectly fine. Um, but maybe pales in comparison to some of her other performances for me. I disagree i think this is my favorite work at least film wise that she's given i'm not huge on kate winslet maybe it's because of her selection of oscar nominations are not great but there, like as i was describing earlier just that scene in the beginning she does a lot of subtle little things that i really appreciate and again like it's difficult to just play kind of an everyday woman compellingly and a lot of people don't find it compelling. A lot of people say this is like clearly the weak link of this lineup and that 
she shouldn't have been here. But I, I really still think she's so fantastic in the film, even if like, no, she's not as iconic as Miranda Priestley and she's not as intense and, and compelling as uh, Barbara Covet and she's not as flourishing and captivating as Raimunda in Volver, but there's something about the character that really like strikes me and I think that she does a good job at playing what could easily be a not-so-interesting character and a character that I don't think either of you find very interesting, so I don't know. It's a tough lineup. It's tough for her. There's some great it performances is. this year. Uh, I I agree that she was good. Um, I think she was better than the film needed her to be. Um, and I do think that she does some interesting things here and she does play the role very well. I just don't know that she um, elevates it in the way that, for example, Meryl Streep did with Miranda Priestly. Uh, I didn't get that kind of um, commitment to getting the character kind of to rise up and be more interesting than the material. I think she played it um, to the material. And in that sense, maybe she missed some opportunities um, and I you know, can't fault her. She needed a better director and a maybe a better script. Sorry, but um, yeah, I I think that she was good. Uh, I, I've never seen her not be good, so she was good. So all of these women we've discussed today, they all lost uh, to Helen Mirren in The Queen. Uh, both you guys are not British. I'm the only Brit here. So did it come as a surprise to you watching this, how anti uh, the royal family, the public were at this point? Well, was that accurate? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't know. I think the difference between watching something like this and something like Spencer, which is clearly, at least on Twitter, much more liked is that Spencer feels much more American. I think Spencer is an American movie. Yes, they speak in a British accent. And yes, Kristen Stewart is like the only American actress in the film. But there's something about it that does not feel like a British movie. Whereas this is the most British movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I still like it. It's kind of like a TV movie. but I I think it's entertaining. Like I'm, I'm interested in, in the story, and I think I think it does a decent job, at least to my knowledge, of portraying it. And it's only like what a hundred minutes, so yeah, short and sweet. I was gonna say a good chunk of that hundred minutes is actually archive footage as well. <laughs> yeah, so easy work uh, for them to make this a feature film. But without that, it would have been like a a short television. A documentary or an episode of the crown or something um and that's why the the director nomination is really baffling to me like that's weird especially knowing how snobby that branch of the academy is why would it get director yeah i don't know stephen frears is pretty well liked by the branch though so maybe that's true yeah. um i was gonna say i was surprised for a film called the queen how little it actually was about the queen like I thought it should have been called like Tony and Bess or something like that because it really seemed like Tony Blair was the 
real was the focus for most of it and his bizarre arc in this where he goes from cheeky uh new prime minister to suddenly the queen's you know staunchest defender like defender of the faith kind of level of intensity that which he defends the queen against people who dare suggest that she's maybe not entirely connected with the people you know shock and horror um <laughs> on that note how helen mccrory is is delightful in this and i loved her i wish she had been the main character you know the the real queen uh of the cast was helen mccrory um and her unrelenting republicanism you know republicanism in the uk sense where it's good um was amazing in this and i really wish it had explored that a little more i know it kind of flirts at the edges of it but for the most part this is a pretty sympathetic portrayal of queen elizabeth and her her uh actions in the wake of diana's death yeah too sympathetic i would say like because you've got this the similar thing with spencer where it portrays customers regressive and unfeeling and stresses the need for the monarchy to modernize but it's still very monarchist at its core that you know really bad rebuke that michael sheen has to deliver to alistair campbell about the queen as a great servant of the country and all this twaddle just feels so schematic and performed Uh, and the whole element of blair becoming wooed by the queen and the idea of the monarchy kind of betrays peter morgan's you know, staunch uh, defense of them, really. It's an institution. Because the film almost feels like it's apologizing for them rather than having a legitimate debate about what they bring to British society. Mm -hmm. I think it's a safe movie in that sense, which is why I called it a TV movie. It does does feel a little bit like it's trying to win Emmys rather than Oscars. Um, And it's definitely flawed. It's also like kind of bland in its, its style, understandably. So I get that this isn't like a great movie, but it is very much a showcase for Mirren, who does a very uh, clean cut portrayal. I think she's very good. Um, She doesn't really come across as anything special. And I think a lot of people say that sort of thing. Oh, this is a boring win. It's because she makes it look so easy. She's she's yes, she's she's done roles similar to this, but the reason why you might think it's a little dull or a little boring is because she's very confident and it's very like, there's a lot of prowess and a lot of ease that she, she makes it look easier than it is. Um, so she, she definitely deserves the most credit here. Um, it's, it's sort of what she's known for and it makes sense. It's definitely, you know, geared for her to win the Oscar. I think no one was predicting anyone else ever like this this was the lock from the beginning of 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 2006 i'm sure um yeah it's it's very easy oscar slam dunk but i think she's really good in the film um and i think she she adds very interesting humanity to the role and there are some scenes that are actually more humorously oriented or have more of an entertaining edge um so I enjoy it a lot, but I, I get that I get that it maybe could have done more bold things in terms of its filmmaking and what it was trying to study. But at the same time, it's it's not really trying to do that. It's just kind of trying to win Helen Mirren an Oscar, which it's fine, but it's a fine, not a great reason to make a movie, but it still works in that regard. 
Uh, that's one of the reasons they made the movie and also to like revive, I guess, British uh, or the public's love of the Queen. Like, wasn't it? This is like 2006, so like nine years on, was the sentiment starting to swing back to where we see it now, uh, you know, where most of the people are back on her side? Or was there still some image rehabilitation to be done in 2006? No, I think the public have got short memories, to be honest, <laughs> when it comes to the mm. royal family. Yeah. Um, we see scandal after scandal now, and they've never been as popular Um as now before so yeah i think yeah that's why it was only like 10 10 years after the event yeah exactly yeah um i think i think mirrored is good in the movie um some of the other performers are really cartoonish i think particularly mark basley and his sneering interpretation of alistair campbell didn't work <laughs> for me Alex Jennings' uh, take on Prince Charles didn't work, and the film portrays Prince Charles as too much of a hero for my liking, to be honest. But yeah, well, still a bit, still a bit weaselly though, you know. Yeah, like going behind talking to Tony Blair and being, you know, like, oh, we're both modern men, right? And but you know, <laughs> still fawning to his parents. So yeah, but no, I, I agree. Yeah. And Michael Sheen, I think, is very good and very down-to-earth as Blair. He sort of comes off as this regular guy behind closed doors, whereas some of the others feel like they're playing up to external impressions of how the different members of the royal family are. James Cromwell, the same thing. Um, (laughs) But Mirren's better moments, I think, are more reactive, particularly when the Queen is re-evaluating the situation and we see where Charles says, I think you've done the right thing by changing her mind about the funeral. And her reaction, I think, is actually really well played. She doesn't respond to him at all, but she's brooding and she's still not comfortable with the idea. And I think finally in that moment, Mirren gets across the inability of someone so stately to recognise the gravity of the situation. And the fact that a woman's died who resented being part of the royal family in the first place. But overall, I think maybe she's confined to a few different expressions of confusion and contemplation in the first half. And it's not a performance that had a lot going on for me, but I think it gets better as it goes on. I thought she was, yeah, I thought she was good. Um, I think there's a, I don't know, a problem that, happens a lot when people portray real and famous people is they end up doing more of an impression than an actual performance and i definitely think this film wants or or is more geared towards just a impression of queen elizabeth rather than getting any deeper into her psyche i agree that helen mirren's uh, reactions are give us a little bit of a window into that, but the film really isn't interested, I feel like, in getting any deeper than surface level, just kind of, um, I don't know. It it feels like image rehabilitation, even if it appeared not to have been needed. And then it has those very Oscar Beatty clips, like where she's connecting with the stag out on the moors. And it's just like, you know, and I'm like, I, I, 
are they honest are they trying to draw some symbolic comparison between her and the stag like she the stag is this beautiful creature that people just won't stop bothering and trying to kill and then in the end she has that scene with the stag's head um again just very very ridiculous and then of course she says you know oh give my congratulations to the rich son of a bitch who killed this animal it's like ugh, disgusting and of course then you have prince philip being upset that a commoner shot the deer instead of instead of the future king of england i hated james crown i don't i love james cromwell but what the hell is he doing playing prince philip um <laughs> but anyway yeah Go, yeah, but again, Mirren, fantastic actress, amazing actress, uh, not the material I think that uh, should have won her the Oscar. Was the stag supposed to be Diana? Maybe? I don't know. It seemed it seemed like the, the film was so virulently pro-royal that the stag, to me, was meant to be... Uh, Meant to be the queen. <laughs> or the institution. I don't know. As an American, I found it compelling, but also, like, you don't need to watch this more than once. It's just kind of informational TV movie with Helen Mirren giving a great performance. I feel like a lot of people who were born in, like, the late 90s or 2000s just kind of own the D- DVD of this movie for, like, no reason. Like, their parents just kind of bought it, and it's kind of there. Like, my parents <laughs> bought this movie, and it's, like, kind of on the shelf. And, like, when I was, you know, starting my Oscar journey, I was like, oh, Best Actress winner Helen Mirren and the Queen, and just popped it in. But, like, I'm sure my parents had never opened that DVD. I think it was not open. They just bought it, and it was sitting there for however long. Um, I don't know. It it kind of feels like that. It's a little BBC TV movie. But I find it entertaining enough and I and I like Helen Mirren a lot in it. Um, but I get it. It's not the most exciting, especially since it's like in in the best picture lineup. Okay, we've got a few list of questions uh this week. The first is from Gordon and he says these five actresses have a combined seven Oscars among them. How do you rank the seven winning performances? Have both of you seen all of the seven? No. no. I have. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I, I'll go first because it'll take the lo- shortest amount of time. Um, okay. I've seen two of them, <laughs> counting this one. <laughs> oh, my and God. So I would say number one, Kramer versus Kramer, Meryl Streep, and number two, The Queen. Over to you guys. Wow. What what a what a wide range. <laughs> Both of which you watch for this podcast. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, have you seen them all? I have, and not only have I seen all the winning performances of all these actresses, I've seen all the nominations from all five of these actresses. All of them. That's a total of like forty five movies or something, and half of those are Meryl. <laughs> My last is Kate Winslet in The Reader. Absolutely not. Trash. My sixth is Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady. Also trash. My fifth is Judi Dench in Shakespeare in Love. Not like anything spectacular, uh, but she does so much with like five minutes or whatever it is, and she's fun. My fourth is Helen Mirren in The Queen. My third is Penelope Cruz in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. My second is Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice. And my favorite is Meryl Streep in Kramer vs. Kramer. Hey, same number one. 
My ranking is very similar. Yeah. My ranking's similar. The only thing that's swapped is I have Mirren at f- uh, five and Dench at four. Otherwise, the same. Oh, wow. So you're, so you're also a, kind of a Judy Dench fan in the movie. She kind of like, she's kind of great. She's fun. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Uh, next question from Matthew. Um, including their Oscar nominations from this year, what are some of your favorite performances from each of these nominees? Uh, well, my favorite Helen Mirren performance is from Gosford Park. Um, I really love her in that, and I wish she'd won the Oscar that year. Um, my favorite Penelope Cruz performance is probably this one um, so far, but as I say, I have yet to see Parallel Mothers. Um, also, my favorite Judy Dench performance, I would say, is probably this one. Meryl Streep, favorite performance, probably mm, either... Uh, either Silkwood or The Bridges of Madison County. Um, it's kind of a tie up there for me. And Kate Winslet, I, I really love her in Revolutionary Road. And if I'm allowed to cheat a little bit, she's also great in Mare of Easton, which is not a movie, but still a great performance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's clear that all of these would be either their first or second for me. Um, but I'm, d- I'm d- just list another for all of them because that would be kind of boring. For Cruz, I mean, Parallel Mothers, of course. You, yeah, I think everyone saw how I reacted to that whole situation. And then Broken Embraces, Los Abrazos Rotos, she's also phenomenal in other Almodovar. Dench, this is by far her best. I think so, but Philomena is really wonderful. Streep, it's this in my heart and then also the bridges of madison county county is my favorite romantic movie ever um and like i I did a ranking of all her nominated performances and i put that first just because it's just so like kind of underrated in in terms of the scope of her career but really just wonderful and then for winslet this i said but i really love two films that she was really snubbed for revolutionary road and heavenly creatures um which is my favorite peter jackson film as well. And I think her and Mel- Melanie Linsky are really good in that film. And then Mirren, this and The Cook, The Thief, the his wife and her lover. Underrated movie from the 80s. She's great in it and she should have been nominated for it. Uh, but yeah, these are such amazing actresses. They have all had such incredible careers. And there's a reason why they're all Oscar winners. Uh, for Cruz and Dench, I would say the best work is in this year. Helen Mirren's amazing at Gosford Park. I think should have won the Oscar. Um, I want to say Death Becomes Her for Meryl because we haven't mentioned that yet, but that is a really fun performance and an underrated one. These um, are the moments that make life worth living. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate Winslet is amazing in Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. Mm, so. yeah. And Mayor of Easttown, she's wonderful too. And Mildred Pierce, another Emmy winning role for her. Really good. Mm-hmm. Next question we've got is from Zeta, and she asks, "Have you ever befriended a Barbara Covert-esque human being?" <laughs> uh, yes, but it wasn't as fun as oh. it would be to be with Judy Dunch. Uh, I did, yes. I'm, when I lived in New York, uh, one of my close friends turned out to be a very Barbara Covert-esque person. Um, <laughs> And fortunately, I was not a Sheba Hart person. I don't want to 
take the comparison that far. But no, I did have a friend who was very, very manipulative and very kind of um, forcing people to fit his own kind of twisted view of reality. And it did take, it took some time to extricate myself from that, but I did. Uh, I didn't have the cathartic moment of finding a diary where he laid out all of his plans. So I, it took me a little while longer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mention his name. We might get sued. No but names. Zita asking this question was kind of like in a jokey way, but like, I feel like we've all made friends that were manipulative assholes. Um, but yes, I also have befriended a Barbara Covet as human being. Her name is Zita Short. I don't know if you know her. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a stalker X story to reveal, but I know I have never Dude. met somebody as much of a fantasist as she was. So. Do you really wish that? Do you really? <laughs> <laughs> just just for these few minutes, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Ronaldo asks, is Barbara Covert the best film role of Dame Judy's career? If not, which others would you put above it? And do we ever think she'll get to play a role this juicy again? This is her best, and no, I don't think so, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I agree that... We seem to, she's been kind of pigeonholed now into uh, lovable old grandmas, which is a real shame because I think she's got another Barbara in her. Yes. Well, you never know. I mean, look at Edith Evans in The Whisperers. True. That's but, true. Um, mm. mm-hmm. But she's probably done. I mean, she's like 86, so I think she's at the twilight of her career now, but. Uh, Andrew asks, uh, let's say Jennifer Hudson, Kate Blanchett and Abigail Breslin uh, were campaigned as lead. Would they make the cut in this category? Uh, and who would get kicked out? And could Jennifer Hudson have beaten Helen Mirren? Here's what I'll say. Uh, we got questions about in, in Alter Universes, is there ways Helen Mirren could have lost? I think no matter what, Helen Mirren wins this Oscar. I think this is just such a slam dunk that regardless, I think she wins. If if they, those people got lead campaigns, I think Kate Blanchett and Abigail Breslin miss, and I think Jennifer Hudson gets nominated. And unfortunately, I think Penelope Cruz might be the one who was taken out, just because it's like that movie only got one nomination, and it was a not English film. Whereas like Notes on a Scandal and Little Children got like into screenplay and and got other acting, and The Devil Wears Prada was just such a big movie, and The Queen was like you know Best Actress winner and also Best Picture nominee. So I think Cruz would have been the one taken out, unfortunately. But Mirren still would have won. I think I think that's fair. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Yeah, me too. I definitely either Cruz or Winslet. Because um, Hudson was extremely well-liked um, for some unknown reason. <laughs> Not a huge fan of that performance, but... Uh, Jacob asks, how would the race have been impacted if Hudson and Blanchett went lead and Dench and Streep were supporting? Would not have changed. You don't think Streep might have won supporting? Well, if if Hudson was in lead, then yeah. But mm. I still think Helen Mirren wins. I kind of... I, I, I can see Streep being supporting, because she is kind of a supporting role she does have those moments and she does have that one scene where we're not seeing her through andy's eyes 
um, which I think was another Streep addition that she wanted. She wanted the audience to see Miranda uh, separate from Andy. Maybe she was thinking about her Oscar campaign. Um, but she could definitely have been campaigned for supporting, and I think if she got in, she wins. Um, I don't get Judy Dench as supporting. Um, like I, when I mentioned this when when we got the question, I, I texted with you, Callum, about it and asked, "Was that even a possibility?" And you said yes, and I, I really can't see why that would ever be on anybody's mind. Yeah, at the, the time. Um, there was a question of which was going to go lead, which was going to go supporting. So, but I kind of think they're both lead. They are, but I get why the category placement happened. Yeah, if, if anybody's going to be lead, it's going to be her. I mean, it's her perspective we're in. She's the one who narrates it. You know, she bookends the film. It's it seems pretty clear. If if any, if either of them are the sole lead it's her she has like four more minutes of screen time than Kate Blanchett well only that much well yeah I think Street might have been able to beat Hudson but I I don't think so just because it, it was like when people d- talked about seeing dream girls in a theater it was like a concert whenever Jennifer Hudson sang it was just so powerful Chauncey asks, what win has the most impact on future races? I didn't really understand what this question meant. I just assumed that meant if if Mirren doesn't win, if one of the others wins, how does that impact future races? Because I think if Meryl wins this, then obviously Viola gets her Oscar for the help. And I think if Winslet wins it, Meryl gets the Oscar for doubt. And again, Viola wins for the help. So, I'd love to live in a world where Viola has a Best Actress Oscar. It'll happen, don't you think? Yeah. yeah Hopefully. So. Uh, ben asks, can we all agree the winner is the weakest? How often <laughs> has that happened? Which would kind of spoil the ranking a little bit, but... But for this, for, for the second question, um, yeah. I mean, all the time. A yeah. lot of the time, a lot of the time. <laughs> but yeah, maybe we should uh, hold off on the answer to the first one uh, until we get to our rankings, or or at least avoid spoilers for our rankings if we do want to address it. Yeah, we've often ranked the winner last when we've done our rankings. Um, in terms of best actress, the one that comes to mind is maybe 2004 with Hilary Swank winning. I think she was definitely the worst that year, but it happens a fair bit. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think I have her last, but she's definitely not better than Imelda Staunton. <laughs> okay, so that brings us on to the question: Why did Helen Mirren win this Oscar, and was it close? Uh, what do you think, Sam? It was not. I think she got one hundred percent of the votes. I think this was so easy. Like it's hard to even think who came in second because it's just she won by such a easy amount um, that. And there's no denying Helen Mirren, it's time time to win your Oscar in your rendition of Elizabeth. Um, it's just it it just happens. If you think about it, it's like how many years of the 2000s do you think this performance loses? I don't think any. I think if you if you put her in any of the lineups, I think she probably could win any of them. Um, 
I don't know. I think I don't think this was close at all. Well, quite bafflingly, I think the critics rallied round her to such a huge extent. The only performance to beat her for a critics' prize was Ellen Page in Hard Candy. So hmm. she even had the seal of approval from the critics, which is confusing, I think, given the quality of the other performances as well. It's sort of like you'd think at least one of them would have won a critics prize, but no. Um, so I, I agree. I think definitely in the 90% range, 90 to 100% range of votes won. Mm-hmm. Oscar loves monarchs. Yeah, they really yes. do. And she hadn't had an Oscar and she'd been around for a while. So it's oh, perfect timing. And I don't think anyone was close to getting nominated either, really. Because all five of the women got nominated at every precursor. It's just like, it was so easy to predict this category. It's like, who would have been nominated instead? I mean, I know David Lynch had that whole Laura Dern campaign, but <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> what about Maggie Gyllenhaal? For Sherry Baby. Any chance that might have happened? No. Nobody saw that film. I don't think so. I think the other options would be Toni Collette. Um, She was in a Best Picture nominee, at least. Um, Beyonce was talked about for Dreamgirls, but that's not a great performance. And she's in it less than Jennifer Hudson by a considerable amount. But Laura Dern should have been nominated. That's an insane performance. There are also people who say that the girl in Pan's Labyrinth deserved a nomination. I don't know. I'd, I'd still keep these five, but I could say that. I love the I love the others. I'd, I'd keep these five, but no, I I think the girl in Pan's Labyrinth should have been a serious contender. Any more snubs? Not really. Uh, I was going to say Tony Collette uh, for Little Miss Sunshine, but... Uh... But there's also, like, category placement. It's just such, such an ensemble mm. film. Mm-hmm. I think uh, yeah. Sandra Huller's amazing in uh, Requiem, the German film, um, which obviously wasn't going to happen, but I think she deserved uh, more awards attention. Wider observations on 2006. This is the year Marty finally got his Oscar, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other day I guested on a podcast called Gold Derby Horses and we essentially covered the entire ceremony and when we got to Best Actress I was like I need to save my thoughts on here but I covered we, we went through like basically every category and my biggest takeaway from the Oscar ceremony is that they got Kate Blanchett to, to present uh, Best Foreign Language Film because she was even though I don't know if they had made a movie at the time she was like friends with Guillermo del Toro and they got her on stage because everyone thought Pan's Labyrinth three-time Academy Award winning film Pan's Labyrinth would win the foreign film Oscar and the way she reads and the Oscar goes to Germany for the lives of others is really funny because she's just so happy and does not expect that at all and it was just her hesitation and stop is really hilarious so that's my biggest takeaway from the oscar ceremony (laughs) yeah because it won a few oscars didn't it pan's labyrinth yes and it got a screenplay nomination yeah it actually had um more nominations than the best picture winner and this um my favorite bit of trivia about this year is it's the third time and the most recent time that you have two films that were not nominated for best picture 
receive more nominations than the Best Picture winner. Both Pan's Labyrinth and Dreamgirls. And of course, you have Dreamgirls with eight nominations, not Best Picture. Um, it's the only time that the, uh, the film with the most nominations of the year isn't a Best Picture nominee. So that's pretty wild. Wow. Granted, three of those are Best Song nominees. Yeah. But <laughs> still. <laughs> what do you guys think about Leo getting nominated for Blood Diamond rather than The Departed? Because there was talk at the time he could have been either. So I I don't know if I've shared this before, but Leonardo DiCaprio in Blood Diamond is like my least favorite Best Actor nominee, like ever. Not okay, maybe not ever. That's a big mm. statement, but definitely of the last like twenty years. <laughs> like I think he's atrocious. The accent, the accent, the mannerisms. It's just so loud. I mean, I think that that's a terrible movie. Um, maybe that's part of it, but I think he's so bad in it. <laughs> yeah, he 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 does have a shaky accent. I'll give you that. Yeah. And we've got Eddie Murphy um, storming off as well after he lost the supporting actor Oscar to Alan Arkin. <laughs> this was like the first, this was kind of like the first time of like the BAFTA upset when it was like someone wins all the awards and then loses BAFTA just to go on to lose the Oscar. And it's very representative of how racist the BAFTAs are and why for some reason they really just don't like American black movies. Um, and I think that's kind of probably why Dream, Dream Girls didn't get its major love that it was expected to. Um, and Little Miss Sunshine is in my top five of all time. But even then, I think Eddie Murphy and Jackie Earl Haley were probably better choices to win. Well, can we another interesting thing about this year is the lack of acting recognition from the Best Picture category. Like the Queen is the only representative in the actress category. None of the five Best Actor nominees came from Best Picture winners. Only five out of the 20 wow. acting nominations came from Best Picture nominees, which is, I mean, I haven't done the legwork, but it's got to be the one of the lowest percentages uh, in in the Oscars. Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of it, the year later, you have Michael Clayton, which gets three acting nominations and then 17 movies that only get one acting nomination, which is really odd. Uh, and I, I think all the best picture nominees that year got into acting categories, but even then it's like, there's still so many non best picture nominees that get into them. It's, it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause dream girls got left out. That was kind of expected to be nominated for best picture. So that would have at least added two. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, even, I mean, four out of the five Best Picture nominees got Oscar nominations, just very, very few of them. (laughs) And is The Departed a good Best Picture winner? I like it, but I prefer Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, I think I do too. I I think The Departed is very much a, hey, have we really never given Scorsese a a Best Director award? Shit, uh, we got to get on that. And so even though I think The Departed is a fine film, um, if it's going to be the only one that he wins director for, I think that's kind of sad. 
if it's just if you look at it, like when else did he have a chance at winning? He didn't really. I mean, I guess he could have won for The Aviator, but The Aviator and Gangs of New York were not movies that people were passionate about. I think this makes more sense to win over those two. And then it's like, yeah, a lot of people say he should have won for Goodfellas and Taxi Driver, but that was never going to happen. Um, just at the time, they were not viewed as movies that could win all these Oscars. But this was, you know, it makes the most sense to me. I don't get the love for ordinary people, to be honest, but... I, I like it. Not as it's nowhere near Raging Bull, though. But yeah, he just kept he just kept coming up against actors who decided to get into directing, and, <laughs> and the Academy just saying, "Oh, we like you. We'll give you." Um, I haven't seen Dances with Wolves. I don't know if that's what it was. I have seen Ordinary People, and I do like it. And I like it as a Best Picture winner. But come on, it's no Raging Bull. I think it's way better than Raging Bull. <laughs> Ooh, fair enough. Fighting talk. <laughs> I do wonder if um, Timothy Hutton could have won Best Actor if he was... Because he should have been nominated in lead. He should. Yeah, but De Niro wins regardless, I think. Yep. Anyway, that's another year. Um, (laughs) Shall we rank these actresses? I'm very curious to hear your ranking. Yes. Yes. All right. This is, okay, well, my fifth is, I know you're both going to agree with this, Kate Winslet is my fifth, despite how much I praised her, especially in, in comparison to you two. I think, I think she's the worst of this group, despite still loving the performance. My fourth would be Helen Mirren in The Queen. Now it's where it's get, it gets tough, because Meryl Streep and Penelope Cruz are like my two favorite actresses ever. Um, I might, hmm... I, I my my thoughts on this changed by the day. I, I've never successfully ranked this lineup without changing it. It's really never been set in stone. I mean, I, I might want to just say a second place tie for Meryl and Penelope. It's really difficult. But just for the sake of going on with it, and I, I want the audience to know that they're tied, but I'd say Penelope third, Meryl second, and Judy Dench first. Judy Dench is my favorite of this group well um mine is close in some ways i actually have helen mirren fifth oh uh simply well uh yeah um simply because (laughs) yeah just the the doing an impression of a famous person just doesn't do it for me even if it's helen mirren um and i think too much of her performance here is just kind of doing Queen Elizabeth rather than making her a compelling character. Uh, So that's why Kate Winslet nudged her out and took number four for me. um, Because I just think there's a little bit more there. Number three is Meryl Streep. Um, I love, I really like her in this. Uh, I think she's the best thing about the film. I also think that she brought so much to it and she did so much work to make Miranda a better character than she would have been if anybody else had played her. Um, and I really appreciate that. But number three, um, number two, I have Judy Dench. Uh, and th- this is where I flip flopped a lot, my top two. Um, but ultimately uh, I had to give it to Penelope Cruz because I just um, think she just is so captivating and fantastic from beginning to end. 
I love Judy Dench in uh, Notes on a Scandal and will think about that performance often uh, for the rest of my life. But uh, <laughs> every night when you go to sleep, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, but Penelope Cruz for me is is the true winner here, and I really wish uh, it hadn't been a runaway for Helen Mirren because I think uh, I think her performance in Bolivar is just so fantastic. I'm somewhere in between both of you. Um, five, I've got Kate Winslet. I think it's just a little dull for me, um, and I didn't think she had enough to do. Um, I think she was better than the movie, though. Uh, four, I've got Helen Mirren. Again, in the first half, a bit of a non-entity, and she kind of grows into it in the second half for me. Three, I've got Meryl Streep. Iconic, um, but just not as good as Judy Dench, who I've got in number two. Uh, who gives such an amazingly scary performance, but I loved Penelope Cruz so much. I thought she was hilarious in the movie. Um, And comedy doesn't get its due enough, so I've got number one, Penelope Cruz. Now I feel weird because I'm probably the biggest Penelope Cruz stan of us three and how much I was running her campaign all season and I put her lower (laughs) than both of you on this ranking. It doesn't really make sense. (laughs) It's a tough year. (laughs) <laughs> it is mm-hmm. okay um, we have a website it's categoricallyoscars.com we're on twitter at categorically o next week we'll be discussing uh, the best screenplay nominations of 1938 which were Boys Town The Citadel Four Daughters Pygmalion and You Can't Take It With You thanks Sam for joining us for this episode can you share anything you've got coming up on your podcast yeah, so my next episode on my podcast uh, will be Dr. Strange Love. Yesterday, I recorded on Gordon's podcast, Lone Acting Nominees, to discuss Marion Cotillard's performance in Two Days, One Night. So that should be coming out soon. And as I mentioned earlier, the Gold Derby Horses episode about the 2006 Oscars. Yeah, so I'm, I've, been, I've been on a lot of podcasts recently. Um, and yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. This is a very interesting idea for a podcast and you two are very passionate about it and 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 truly care and i and i really thought you guys were such nice and amazing hosts um and we discussed such a great lineup with amazing performances and you saw how much of a struggle it was in the end for me to rank it uh but yeah this was this was so great thank you so much for having me (laughs) oh thank you it's been a pleasure um we'll be back with a new episode next week see you then
la nieve del tiempo platearon mi cielo sentí que es un soplo la vida que 20 años no es nada que febril la mirada errante en la sombra te busca y te logra vivir con el alma aferrada a un dulce recuerdo que lloro otra vez 